the whole macroeconomics kind of ties everything in and I think provides a good foundation for someone to understand kind of like the, the longer term benefits of investing in assets like real estate, which are relatively illiquid and like I said, have high transaction costs. So I think it's important for people to understand for getting involved in, you know, whether buying a single family home or getting involved in a syndicated opportunity, you know, these are assets that we're holding on to for multiple years. And so I think it's just important to understand, you know, the trends and to invest with the trend. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now... Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show. Today, we have Mo Bina. Mo is the founder of High Rise Capital, a real estate investing group that invests in various commercial real estate assets like senior housing, mobile home parks, multifamily, self-storage, and industrial properties. In this episode, Mo will be telling us how to look at macroeconomic trends to determine the best way to invest in real estate. We'll also be going over how to invest passively in a real estate syndication and what to look for in a sponsor. And by the way, this is our 200th episode. Thank you all so much for coming on this journey with me. Over the past two years, I've been able to interview hundreds of experienced real estate investors to learn their secrets of success while also being able to share that information with all of you. So thank you again so much for your support and I'm looking forward to the next 100 episodes. By the way, if you're looking to network with other investors, Join our meetup group at meetup.com slash everything REI. By joining the meetup, you can learn new investing strategies, create partnerships, and find mentors to help you along your investing journey. And if you're looking for a hard money loan to purchase your next investment, feel free to contact me to get started. And now, on to the show. All right, Mo, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Hi, Sean. Thank you for having me on your show. My name is Mo Bina, and I run a company called uh, High Rise Capital. And we invest in various commercial real estate assets like a senior living, mobile home, parks, multifamily. We also like self-storage and also uh, industrial assets as well, too. Awesome. So do you want to tell us how you got started with real estate investing? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. It's been uh, kind of many years in the works. You know, a lot of it actually started at the last uh, Great Recession, you know, back in 2008, 2009, when, you know, the value of my portfolio dropped substantially, holding, you know, stocks and so forth. You know, I'd kind of gone through that kind of like that volatility, you know, roller coaster, you know, and that was the second time. You know, the first time was with the, the dot com track uh, crash that took place in the early 2000s. And I spent a number of years after the last recession, you know, kind of considering, you know, whether or not, you know, I wanted to have, you know, my investments and wanted to invest primarily in, you know, paper assets and, you know, kind of play that Wall Street casino, as I call it. And I started to kind of look around and, and start to evaluate you know, alternative investments and alternative assets and things, you know, outside of like the traditional realm of stocks and bonds and mutual funds. And, and so that kind of started, you know, the, the whole path to uh, real estate. I've been studying the uh, financial markets for many years. It's kind of been a fascination and a hobby of mine. So one day years ago, I listened to a show from the real estate guys and a number of people may know who they are. I know they're local in your area, or at least they, they used to be. And, you know, I heard these guys talk about the underlying issues in the financial system and how they tied it into real estate and talked about how real estate was an excellent way to kind of invest. You know, one is an inflation hedge, but also as a way to avoid the volatility of the stock market and paper assets. And a lot of that really resonated with me. And I started down the path of kind of looking more at real estate and understanding it, you know, on a much deeper level. And, uh, 
I credit the real estate guys and their podcast show with kind of, you know, that initial like epiphany of real estate and how real estate was a way of kind of getting out of that. And from there, I kind of like became a passive investor in syndicated opportunities. And that kind of like still was along the same lines of, you know, this belief that the real estate guys have talked about too, and that I firmly believe is, you know, Main Street investing in Main Street, you know, with the syndicated opportunities, we can all invest in each other's deals. And, you know, that really struck a chord with me that we can all basically kind of improve and we can all kind of invest and benefit from each other, you know, instead of putting our money into like, you know, volatile and, you know, paper assets. So I know that was a long answer, but that essentially is how my journey started. That's interesting. So you never even bought your own first like small rental out of state. You kind of just went straight for a passive syndication. Well, ironically, I started with passive syndications and then I actually did kind of dabble with the out-of-state single-family homes. And I realized kind of the same thing that I was hearing, that it's just not a very, at times it can be not very scalable activity. I realized that I was also doing a lot more work for something that was supposed to be a passive investment. So even though you can have, let's say, a single-family home and you'll have a local property management company manage the property, it seemed like I was managing the property management company more than I felt I should be. And I started to kind of like realize like, hey, well, if I'm supervising them X number of hours, and let's say that my plan is to essentially grow from one single family home to five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, And let's say if I multiply those hours, even if I only take 60 or 70% of those hours and multiply them, it seemed like I was just still doing a lot more active work than I was what was supposed to really be just a passive investment. Yeah. So how many uh, single family homes did you end up buying before you went back to the commercial multifamily side? Well, actually, I only bought one and I quickly realized, and I was actually in the process of looking at, you know, multiple others, you know, at that time. And I was kind of, you know, just kind of drawing the comparison. And I was also hearing other people kind of like talk about the whole scalability aspect as well, too. And so I was kind of like, you know, taking all that into consideration. When I started doing single family homes, I kind of thought of it more of a way of kind of diversifying, you know, my real estate holdings. And so initially, although I kind of thought, okay, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with diversification and having, you know, asset classes, let's say, geogra diversified geographically and also across different, you know, investment types. So you can have, you know, so I could be a passive investor in multiple syndicated opportunities and I can diversify, you know, across, you know, different types of investment strategies like a development or just like a, you know, more kind of like a more traditional value add. And then I can diversify with a single family home. I just felt like I was doing way too much time, you know, overseeing and kind of like, you know, dealing with an HOA as well, too, which probably was another layer of complexity that I ran into when I was doing, you know, when I was looking down the path of like adding more single family homes to my portfolio. So at that point, I, I decided I think it was just a better route, you know, for me personally to just kind of concentrate on the syndications. And, you know, I kind of started building a network and eventually that led to me, you know, founding, you know, high rise capital. Did you end up selling that single family home? No, I still have it. I still have it. I like the market that it's in. I believe in the market a lot. It just for me was a matter of like, I just felt like I was expending a little bit too much time and energy, you know. Got it. So yeah, you just didn't want to grow that part of the business, but you kept on to it because it's so well-performing asset. Yeah, I really like the market a lot. It's in Central Florida, which a lot of people I, I know really like a lot from an investment point of view. Florida in general is a great state. You know, it's very uh, landlord friendly. You've got job growth, and with job growth, you're going to have population growth. 
You've got also a lot of retirees that have been moving to Florida for many years now. And so I really like the state and I really like the area that I've invested in personally. Again, for me, it was uh, just more of like, I felt like I was just expending too much time. And had I bought other properties in Florida, I, I think I still would have kept them had I continued to go down that path. But again, you know, I just kind of stopped with the one that I have. Gotcha. How have your passive investments been performing? Well, that's a good question. You know, when I first got into this, I, I kind of went a little blind and, you know, I've learned a lot and that experience and kind of like bringing together the various types of sponsors and private equity companies that I was in that, that I'd invested in kind of led me to kind of evaluate and kind of see like the pros and cons and the different approaches. And, you know, I kind of learned, you know, good ways of doing things and perhaps some not so good ways of doing certain things. And so I brought a lot of that experience together in terms of like the philosophy and in terms of like how I run, you know, high rise capital. So basically I used a lot of that as a learning experience. And so I've invested in like ground up development. I've also invested in like value add type uh, investments. And so I've kind of had a, you know, flavor, you know, for the different types of investment strategies. So if you were to start over, like, what do you think you would have done differently? Well, you know, these are kind of some of the things, one of the things on my website that I put together is, is an ebook, and we can talk about that later. But, you know, in that ebook, I basically drew upon a lot of experiences with, you know, understanding, first of all, like, you know, what is your investment strategy as an investor? You know, what types of markets are you perhaps interested in? And, you know, how all these things kind of come together. It's a tough question because a lot of it's also based on experience. But I think that if people are kind of proactive and I think if they take the time to, you know, really understand and kind of educate themselves, you know, they can understand and build a kind of solid foundation for what they're looking to do. And ultimately, you know, we are not financial, you know, advisors, you know, we're here basically just talking about our own experiences and so it's important that investors, especially credit and sophisticated investors, kind of understand, you know, what are they trying to do? There's nothing wrong necessarily with having, you know, a certain amount of your portfolio, let's say like in, you know, paper assets. And some people use syndicated opportunities to kind of build a more well-rounded portfolio, you know, so something that kind of offsets the volatility of like of the stock market. And so they use you know, uh, real estate, especially direct owner ownership in real estate, which is what uh, syndicated opportunities allow, you know, someone to do and to kind of build something uh, about more balanced portfolio or one that maybe has probably volatile assets with assets that are not as volatile and that have also historically, you know, actually delivered better returns as a whole. And on my website, I actually put together a financial graph as well, too, with a calculator so people can actually see like the historical returns of the stock market compared to like private ownership in real estate and actually see that private ownership in real estate is actually uh, in commercial real estate, excuse me, have actually delivered almost you know uh, double the returns over the stock market. So it's a really good question. And it's a tough one in the sense that it's, it's a very individualistic thing. You know, someone really has to understand, you know, where they've been and what they're trying to accomplish. You know, for me, I, I love the passive investor kind of model where you know, I'm going to build a portfolio of passive income and, you know, I'm going to get all the tax benefits from that and those tax benefits of passive losses and depreciation and using cost segregation and so forth allow me to, you know, reduce or in some cases, you know, perhaps eliminate most of the, the tax liability of that passive income. Yeah. And I've been on your website and it's a very sleek tool there. Do you want to shout out your website so people can check it out? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah. The, uh, the website is uh, high. H-I-G-H hyphen rise, R-I-S-E capital.com. So it's high 
hyphenrisecapital.com. Nice. And yeah, what made you decide to transition from being a passive investor to go more towards the active side? And what were your steps to do that? As I was kind of, you know, first starting out as a passive investor, you know, I was spending a lot of time kind of like educating myself, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, I think is really important. And so I was spending time going to conferences, spending time going to seminars, spending a lot of time, you know, kind of doing like self-study, reading articles and listening to a lot of podcasts, you know, like your show and others, and just trying to learn as much as I could about real estate, learning about commercial real estate, learning about the different asset classes in commercial real estate, learning about, you know, asset protection, also learning about taxes, you know, because those are also really key components as well, too. And as I was doing that, I, I just, you know, developed a passion and a, and a drive and a love for it. And uh, that basically led to me, you know, starting my company. Nice. So what were you doing to decide, all right, I'm open for business. Let's get started. Well, what happened was I sat down for several months and I started writing my ebook. I kind of like started reflecting about, you know, a lot of the experiences and a lot of the things that I wish I knew when I first got started. And I wanted to share a lot of that. And, you know, I had a lot of conversations with people. A lot of people were constantly asking me about what is this commercial real estate thing you're doing? Like, you know, especially friends and family. And so I was, uh, it seemed like I was spending a lot of time kind of answering the same questions, you know, over and over again. And so when I sat down to start writing the ebook, I kind of thought about all the things that I, one, wish I knew when I first started. And then two, you know, a lot of the questions that I know other people have had for me and questions that I perhaps even have asked of myself and things that, you know, so I just kind of went through that process. And, you know, when I first started writing the ebook, it was probably only about, I was probably shooting for about 10 or 12 pages. And in the end, it would it ended up being almost about 40 pages long. And I probably could have continued to write, but I realized at some point I just kind of had to draw the line in the sand and just say, you know, that's it. But, you know, kind of along those lines, you know, I'm also uh, working on other content as well, too, about other asset classes. The ebook is kind of focus a little bit on multifamily, although a lot of the basics and a lot of the kind of like groundwork work and the background that I laid into it, you know, transcends multifamily and also applies to uh, other asset classes as well, too. Can you give us maybe one or two of the you know big golden nuggets from your ebook? Well, I will definitely tell you the thing that I'm probably most proud about and the one that I get complimented on the most is that the chapter that I wrote on kind of macroeconomic trends and conditions, you know, in that chapter... I basically, you know, spent quite a bit of time talking about, you know, monetary and fiscal policies. I talked about, you know, underemployment, stagnant wage growth, debt, you know, consumer debt, corporate debt, government debt. And all these things are important to kind of understand, you know, when we invest in real estate, whether it be residential or commercial, you know, we are getting involved in investments that are very liquid. And these are assets that have high transaction costs. And so these are assets that, you know, we plan on holding for five, seven, up to 10 years or more. And so it's important that we understand what the long-term trends are. And so that was because I've always had an interest in the financial markets, you know, I thought it was really important that other people also kind of understand too, you know, it's something that I don't see or hear really talked about much is kind of like, what are these long-term trends and the importance of understanding them and what, what do they even are? And so, you know, when I talk about these things, you know, I talk about like, for example, like negative interest rates and zero interest rate policies, and people hear these things and may not quite understand what they are and how they apply and 
why it's beneficial to own, you know, assets like real estate and perhaps even like other ones like, you know, precious metals or, or at least these things to have some place in one's portfolio. And so I started talking about all this and I tied it all into, you know, the long-term trends and the benefits to investing in real estate. And especially what we've seen now, you know, where we see, you know, our government and also other governments and central banks around the world basically flooding the financial system with trillions of dollars. And, you know, what are the long-term effects of all this? You know, we keep hearing that inflation is not an issue, although it's clear that the central banks are trying to create inflation. And we've had deflationary forces for, for many, many years going on. And, you know, it's hard to say, you know, when inflation will creep up. But, but I think that if when you look at, you know, other assets like gold and silver and how they've been trading, you can see that, you know, the markets are, are signaling that they're concerned about inflation as well, too. And the beauty about real estate is, you know, we're owning assets that are in need that provide a benefit to our society. In the case of like mobile home parks and multifamily and even senior living, you know, these are all assets that, you know, fulfill a basic human need. You know, people need a place to live. In the case of senior living, you know, it can be a little bit more than that by providing care to elderly, which is very important. But, you know, for example, like even like self-storage and like industrial assets, I mean, these all have a place in our society. Our society cannot function without, you know, these other types of asset classes. And so, you know, the whole macroeconomics, you know, kind of ties everything in and kind of like, you know, really, I think provides a good foundation for someone to understand kind of like the, the longer term benefits of investing in, you know, assets like real estate, which are, you know, relatively illiquid and like I said, have high transaction costs. So I think it's important for people to understand, you know, before getting involved in, you know, whether buying a single family home or buying, you know, getting involved in a syndicated opportunity, you know, these are assets that we're holding on to for multiple years. And so I think it's just important to understand, you know, the trends and to invest with the trend. You know, one thing I really appreciate about real estate investing is that it's actually a good hedge against inflation because if inflation occurs, well, your property values go up and your rents do go up, but your mortgage is usually a fixed payment. So you are going to be just fine in that category. And I agree with you on that point. Sorry. I remember when I was in college, I remember one of the things I learned in the, I think it was in an econ class and the professor was talking about whether or not he was giving an example about whether or not you'd want to pay your mortgage off in a 15 year or a 30 year mortgage. And he gave the example and he was showing that, you know, when you have like a 30 year mortgage that you're paying off that mortgage and also in depreciated dollars as well. So like you said, you got, you have a fixed monthly mortgage, let's say, but you know, when you get into like years 15, 20, 25, you know, and you get towards the end of that 30 year amortization, you know, you're paying off that mortgage with highly depreciated dollars, you know, even if depreciation or, or sorry, if you think, sorry, inflation is only like several percentage points a year, and there's a lot to actually counteract that, you know, there's some great websites out there that track, you know, what the real inflation rate is. And I think a lot of people inherently also know, too, that inflation is, is higher than what the government says it is. You know, when you consider, you know, cost of higher education for a lot of families sending their kids to college, housing in a lot of markets. And when you consider, you know, basically just expenses for like healthcare as well, is inflation really two to three percent? I think a lot of people would say that, no, it's not. So it also comes down to how it's being measured and how it's being reported too. So but real estate is a great way to hedge against all that as well. And a 30-year mortgage and a, and a long-term mortgage, you know, helps you to, you know, pay down with depreciated dollars. Exactly. And we actually live in some really special times right now, you know, COVID, economic shutdowns. What have you seen in terms of the data 
Like, where is real estate going now due to COVID? That's a great question. You know, a couple of the asset classes that I've tended to stay away from are retail and office. And I think that before COVID, you know, those two asset classes were kind of going through, you know, some transformation. They were kind of evolving. And I think that now with COVID, I think that those trends and those kind of like, you know, changes that were taking place have just become more accelerated. You know, for example, in retail, you know, retail, you know, has kind of been affected because of the rise of like e-commerce. And I think because of COVID, you know, more and more people that are, you know, perhaps, you know, engaging more in e-commerce and buying online. And, you know, also with, you know, what we've seen, you know, with businesses being shut down and, you know, the hundreds, if not even the thousands of businesses that, you know, will go bankrupt and will never be around, you know, that will definitely affect, you know, the retail market. And of course, offices being affected too. Before COVID, you know, there was kind of like the the co-working spaces and, you know, uh, the kind of like the need for businesses to kind of reduce their overhead and to reduce their office footprint as much as possible. And I know I've also heard, you know, the counter argument saying that, oh, well, some businesses are going to expand their footprint because now they want to have more distance between workers. And that certainly may be the case. I personally believe that, you know, as a whole, I think that the need for office is going to basically diminish. And I think it's, it may just transition more to kind of being like a co-working type environment. I think you're definitely going to see more people working from home. I think that's definitely going to be, you know, something that's going to be part of like the, the corporate culture in our nation. You know, uh, employees are going to be allowed to work from home, if not on a full-time basis, then probably maybe a part-time basis. And maybe they go into the office occasionally to meet with, you know, fellow coworkers, meet with clients, whatever it may be. So, yeah, I mean, the, the current climate with COVID is, is definitely affected to those two asset classes. And it's, I think it's affected, you know, the other ones as well, too. So multifamily is also being affected, too. People are wondering, okay, you know, for example, we would have a multifamily property and we may have some common areas. We may have a gym and, you know, but, you know, gyms at a lot of these complexes have been closed. And so now they're kind of wondering, like, well, when we build multifamily in the future, are we going to have such large common spaces? And so it's still in a, in a huge flux. And I think it's going to take perhaps even years to fully you know, see the full effects of how this is going to affect some of these asset classes in terms of how new ones are kind of designed and built. One of my favorite is industrial. Uh, and it's something that's grown on me. One of my good friends has basically uh, turned me on to industrial. It, it was one that I've read about you know, for quite some time. But you know, when you look at what's happened to retail and you look at the rise of e-commerce and, you know, one of the benefits to that has been the industrial asset class. So. So industrial meaning like storage space. Industrial meaning like, you know, warehouses that can also be like cold storage, you know, logistical warehouses within industrial. There's all these different gradations as well, too. And I'm certainly not an expert on it, but I can see that, you know, it definitely is a trend that is growing. And it's benefiting from that rise of e-commerce and essentially how retail has been adversely affected. It's basically benefited or come to the benefit of, you know, the industrial asset class, you know, people wanting deliveries of, you know, they order something and they don't want to have to wait, you know, several days for it. They want to have to maybe wait a day or get it fairly quickly. And so there's, you know, the location of these industrial assets in order to kind of like deliver, you know, uh, to people in a shorter time period so that they can 
get something in a matter of a day or two at the most instead of having to wait several days. And of course, that's you know the beauty of like Amazon, right? And what they've been able to do and why you know the prime membership is so alluring what people can actually get things, you know, by the next day. If you live in a pretty urban area that is close to one of these kind of like that's logistically located in, in a friendly spot. So that makes sense. What do you think geographically, like where do you think investments are heading towards or away from? Do you think investors or home buyers are going to move away from certain areas and start going towards certain areas? That's a good question. Before COVID, you know, we've seen a migration out of a lot of areas like California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, you know, there's been a a net exodus, let's say, of people leaving these areas for, you know, a number of reasons, you know, whether it happens to be due to high taxes, high cost of living, maybe just not a very business friendly, you know, environment, high regulations or a lot of regulations, you know, for, for starting a company, for building a business or even for an existing business. And so, you know, there's been this movement, you know, to the, the Southwest and also to the Southeast markets like Texas and Arizona and, and Florida, just to name a few, have benefited nicely, you know, from, you know, a kind of like catering and, you know, uh, being very kind of open to businesses. And, you know, it's hard to have population growth if you don't have job growth. And so, you know, been, they've been very friendly to, to businesses and providing tax incentives as well, too. So, how this changes, you know, with regards to COVID. I know, for example, I've read some articles recently like Manhattan. There's record numbers of vacancies right now in Manhattan. And so maybe it appears that, you know, there's going to be an exodus out of urban areas. How long that's going to be and and how bad that's going to be is, you know, it's going to take time. But if what's happening in Manhattan happens to a lot of other major cities, you got to really wonder like, wow, I guess the trend that we've been seeing where people going to the suburbs, I guess is going to continue. And one of the interesting things is, although office has been affected, like we kind of mentioned a few minutes ago, from what it appears is that office is actually, office is growing in the suburbs. So I don't know which one is leading the other. I don't know if the construction and the development of office projects in the suburbs is then kind of pulling people to the suburbs or is are people moving to the suburbs to leave urban areas and then offices and businesses are kind of following them? I'm not sure if, if it's the chicken or the egg. And maybe at the end, ultimately, it probably doesn't even matter. All we know is that is definitely a trend and that trend has been growing. And I think with COVID, I definitely think that that probably is going to accelerate as well too. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in the next two to three years. So. Exactly. And I think we're actually very lucky to be investing in real estate during this time because we're going to be able to see this next chapter and hopefully follow the trends upwards as we recover in the future. Yeah, it'll be interesting how this all kind of plays out. You know, people are always kind of trying to predict what's going to happen. And I remember, you know, all the prognostications for what type of recovery we're going to see and all the different shapes and the V's and the U's and all that stuff. And Ultimately, nobody really knows. I like to look at historical trends, and then I kind of like to see, you know, based on what's going on real time. But, you know, when trends start, they take a long time to change. I mean, you know, the trends that we've talked about already, these are trends that have really already been in place. And I think, if anything, they're just going to be accelerated by COVID and the effects of COVID. But I don't necessarily see any of these long-term trends changing. And I could be wrong. But uh, I think that these trends have kind of started for reasons other than COVID. But 
It just so happens that, you know, movement into suburbs, you know, that's just a natural thing, you know, for people fleeing urban areas and dense areas, like, you know, for example, we talked about with uh, with Manhattan. And so I think that's definitely going to be a trend that's going to accelerate as well, too. I don't think that you're going to want to see more people wanting to go into urban areas. And of course, you know, businesses will, will follow that. And I think when they do follow, I don't think they'll have the same footprint. So now we're taking two different trends and kind of combining them. So I think you'll have, you know, the growth of office in the suburbs, but I think they'll have a, they'll have a smaller footprint than they did before. And it could be substantially smaller and it could be more of a kind of a co-working type model. And employees are just kind of occasionally coming in, you know, to perhaps, you know, facilitate a, a meeting or to use like a common conference room, you know, to meet with a client. So it'll be interesting to see how kind of a lot of this uh, plays out. Exactly. I'm excited to see how it plays out too. And going back to high-rise capital, I noticed that you invest in many different asset classes, not just multifamily. Do you want to talk about how you decided the different asset classes that you got into and also how you were able to diversify your portfolio so much? Yeah, you know, with like I mentioned about kind of office and retail, those are two asset classes that I don't want to sound like, you know, investors cannot make money in these asset classes. They certainly can. I think it just takes a lot more kind of expertise and it takes a lot more kind of know-how and a certain level of sophistication, especially because they're transitioning. There's a lot of transition taking place and it's going to take some time. And I think COVID is going to accelerate these transitions. And so when I look at the other asset classes outside of those two, they all have really great compelling reasons. Multifamily, of course, you know, like I covered this in my ebook extensively about, you know, uh, the rise of or the decreasing number of people being able to buy a home. So home ownership on the decline, and it has been for many years now. People think that with COVID, that home ownership will actually then, you know, turn the other way. And that certainly may be the case. There may be a greater demand for home ownership because now people are spending more time at home. But on the flip side, will they actually have the means to buy a home? Right. I mean, that's important. If you want someone may want to buy something, but will they be able to afford, especially in some of these high price markets? And so so I think multifamily is going to be in demand for many, many years. We've talked about industrial self-storage is one that has tended to do very well, especially during recessions. Mobile home parks, very compelling story. You know, the supply of mobile home parks actually decreases every year, believe it or not. So every year there's actually fewer and fewer mobile home parks on the market. A lot of them eventually get perhaps replaced with something else. You know, there's a, there's a lot of stigma associated with mobile home parks, but ultimately they cater to people that, on the, let's say, perhaps on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. And I'm generalizing because I've seen a lot of mobile home parks that are actually really great areas and actually have really great locations. And so I don't want to make it sound like all mobile home parks are um, not desirable, but generally speaking, mobile home parks have tended to be in areas that, you know, cater to people that, you know, perhaps can't afford even like multifamily or a higher end multifamily. And then when you look at like senior living, that's an asset class that I love, you know, the demographics favor it very highly. In senior living, you know, when you look at like the average age of a person, for example, like in a assisted living facility, which I think is about 82, 83 years old, and you look at kind of demographic projections in our country, we are not going to peak at that age range for another five to seven years, I believe. So I think there'll be a continuing demand for senior living. I do believe that COVID is going to affect that asset class. I'm still trying to better understand what those effects may be. A lot of the effect, though, I think is probably going to be on the kind of like the skilled nursing end of uh, senior living. So Within senior living, of course, you have like independent living, assisted living, memory care, and then you have like kind of skilled nursing. And 
So it's a very need-based, you know, asset class at that kind of like that higher end. And when you look at more and more people in terms of like needing memory care, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, they're going to require that level of care. So it'll be interesting to see how the design of some of these uh, senior living facilities change in the next few years as a result of COVID. So, but again, that is an asset class that I like a lot. So how do you get involved with all those different asset classes? Like how are you meeting other sponsors or are you doing the deals all yourself? Well, a lot of it, my partners and I, essentially what we're doing is a lot of, uh, you know, meeting with sponsors, building relationships. At the end of the day, you know, some of the projects out there, you know, a lot of people, especially like in the multifamily space are really getting into like the whole value add strategy. And, you know, that's great. The problem that's happened for the last few years is, a lot of the assets have kind of been bid up and there are some, you know, where you can still find some great opportunities and great gems, you know, but people tend to have been paying a lot for multifamily, especially on the value add side in some markets. But there's also the opportunity in some markets, you know, for development and development plays. And so, you know, there are areas where it's perhaps even cheaper or, or easier, I should say, to build a brand new multifamily than it is to go out and find a value add opportunity. And a lot of great desirable markets, you know, where there's job growth and, and population growth taking place in these areas, they tend to be very business friendly and because they're business friendly. They also tend to be very development friendly as well, too. And so it makes sense to actually, you know, perhaps look at pursuing a development and adding to the supply on the market. And that's out there. So yeah, it takes a lot of relationship building. It takes a lot of like knowing who you're working with. And uh, essentially, you know, that's the goal of like uh, what my partners and I do. You know, we're out there, you know, building these relationships, understanding the markets. You know, there's so many great markets out there. It's hard to be, you cannot be an expert in, in even more than a handful, honestly. Every market has its own sub-market. You know, there are nuances, especially if you're looking at a development play. You know, that comes from years and years of building relationships with people who are involved in the, the planning commission. They're involved on the regulatory side. And so build, they build relationships and they understand, you know, what they can and can't do. And so that's a really big component to a lot of the development plays as well, too. You know, it's one thing to come into a market and to try and say, hey, I'm going to buy this asset. I'm going to reposition and I'm going to do a value add. Versus saying, okay, I'm going to come into this market and I've located a property and I'm going to do a, I'm going to build ground up. Well, it's one thing to come in and do the value add. It's a completely different thing to come into a market where you don't have relationships and understand the planning commission, understand, you know, the residents, understand the city council and, you know, what their thoughts are on development and so forth. And so it's a very nuanced thing and, and that takes years to develop years. And so it's it's all about finding, you know, good, experienced, reputable developers and sponsors. Absolutely. And if someone wants to invest with your company, what is the process? Well, on my website, I do have an investor kind of sign up page. And so that's where people can go and essentially just describe a little bit about kind of like their investment goals and what they're looking to do, just so that we make sure that there's proper alignment. And so when we have opportunities, we send that out to our uh, kind of our investor database. And so that's kind of the, the first thing someone or that's one thing someone could potentially do. I did mention my ebook before, and I also put out a monthly newsletter as well. So if anyone is looking to just kind of better educate and to just kind of understand, you know, syndications, commercial real estate 
and just kind of broaden their depth of knowledge. That would be a great place to start with. And my monthly newsletter that I put out is also very kind of adds to that. For me, it's all about education and understanding, you know, first more than anything. And there's nothing wrong with people taking the time, whether it be even months or or longer, you know, to fully understand, you know, what they want and what they want to do. I think that's very important. I don't think this is something anyone should ever rush into. And so, you know, I tend to be very methodical in what I do. And that serves a lot of people very well, you know, just to make sure that they've covered their bases. And how can people get in contact with you? Yeah, on my website, I have a contact page. So uh, people can go there. They want to uh, send an email. It's also on my contact page, but they can send an email to info, I-N-F-O at high-risecapital.com. They want to email us and uh, we'll respond accordingly. But like I mentioned, the website has a lot of great educational material in addition to the ebook. So they can go there and kind of take a look at that and, and hopefully build a good foundation. I run across uh, credit investors all the time who don't understand about syndications, don't know that they can even invest, you know, in direct ownership of commercial real estate assets. And so it's a really great place to kind of start from and to kind of build from there. And also to listen to shows like yours and others. There's a lot of great podcasts out there. That's how I first started kind of learning. I, I listened to a great variety of shows. And I'd also recommend that for anyone who's trying to learn more about commercial real estate and, and being a passive investor. Well, Mo, thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us everything that we need to know about syndications and about the market. The trends that we talked about today are very important to know because we often skip that part. And most podcasts or most you know YouTube videos don't have enough time to really go in depth to learn more about how you know the macroeconomics affect your asset. So I will highly recommend anyone that's listening to the show to check out your ebook because that chapter seems like it has a lot of information. And to also contact you afterwards if you have any follow-up questions. Yes, please do. And my monthly newsletter as well, too, kind of gets into some of this macroeconomic stuff as well, too. And again, I think it's really important to kind of build that kind of solid foundation. So thank you. Perfect. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review to get updated when the latest episode comes out. A brief summary of this podcast can be found in the show notes at everythingrei.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.